I wanted to share a morning reading from Clinton Lee Scott, who was born on September 28, 1887, and died on his 98th birthday on September 28, 1985, almost a centenarian. From the east comes the sun, bringing a new and unspoiled day. It has already circled the earth and looked upon distant lands and faraway peoples. It has passed over mountain ranges and the waters of the seven seas. It has shone upon laborers and the fields, into the windows of homes and shops and factories. It has beheld proud cities with gleaming towers and also the hovels of the poor. It has been witness to both good and evil the works of honest men and women, and the conspiracies of knaves. It has seen marching armies, bomb-blasted villages, and the destruction that wasteth at noonday. Now, unsullied from its tireless journey, it comes to us as a messenger of the morning, a harbinger of a new day. Let us consider the words of the great universalist minister, Clinton Lee Scott, who accomplished many things in his long life, but most of all, he brought consciousness to every day of his own life. I wanted to uh, talk to you today about revolution, revolution and reformation. As Rosh Hashanah brings us to a point of reflection on our lives together. October, despite its name, is not the eighth month of the year because of the arbitrary insertion of two other month days, month names, into the logic of the annual Julian calendar. The month of October is often the time of important events and lessons in human history. Perhaps because of our collective psychology relating in some elemental ways to the change of seasons, of which we sang just a few moments ago. Even more than baseball playoffs in the World Series, even more than the historical facts of stock market crashes and the anxiety that many of us feel, as Robert expressed so well, about the presidential campaigns, the debates. And that's a really big open thing until you actually see your candidate go through it. And the potentials for what are called October surprises that may change everything. October is the month of the ancient pagan observance of Samhain, the Day of the Dead in the Mexico, All Souls Day, All Saints Day, Halloween, a lot of things that have rituals built around them. It's also a day that, or a month that we might mark changes in theological terms, as we may pause to remember what is called Reformation Day in the Lutheran Church. It's October 31, or the Sunday closest to it, that day in 1517 that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses, objecting to the practice of selling indulgences, he posted these theses on the public door of um, the cathedral in Württemberg. He was objecting to the practice of selling indulgences because he saw it as counter to what he read in the Bible. And he was personally responsible for translating the Bible from the church Latin to the German that the people could read if they were trained to read. This is shortly after the invention of the movable type printing press so that more and more people could actually read what was in the Bible for themselves. 
as a laborer himself who studied church law and then entered the monastery and then, after a midlife crisis, became a middle-aged married priest, Luther thought of himself as a corrective to the improper practices in the church that were not according to what he read in his Bible. So for him, he was being a reformer, someone who was improving what was the ordinary practice in the Catholic Church of his time. But by denying the infallibility of the dogma about purgatory, the sufficiency of faith alone as redeeming the true believer from the pains of hell, he could see, be seen by the established Catholic Church as an, a fire-burning revolutionary who wanted to destroy the church itself. Of course, in a way, he did achieve that, even though that wasn't his aim, because he was saying that there had to be ways for the Pope to raise money to build cathedrals instead of taking from the impoverished, insisting that they, in order to escape hell and purgatory, had to come up with cash, somehow converting their meager existence by selling what was to keep them what they had to keep themselves alive. Another date worthy of remembering in our Unitarian and Universalist tradition is October 27, the day that the church and state authorities of Geneva carried out the order of execution for Michael Servetus, also known as Michel Villeneuve. Miguel Cerveto, who was a physician, a lawyer, and a theologian, who stubbornly confronted the leading Protestant theologian of his time, John Calvin, also known as Jean Calvin. Of, so, of course, several years before 1553, when this execution was carried out, the Catholic Inquisition had also condemned Servetus for his heretical writings when he established the full circulation of the blood throughout the body, among other things, counter to the scientific or the pseudo-scientific beliefs of the church. But it was his insistence on confronting Calvin with the results of his extensive analysis of the Bible. Servetus insisted that there is no biblical basis for the church dogma of the Trinity within the Bible itself. In calling for a separate nature of God, the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit as permanently divine, all three, and separate. Although Servetus also saw himself as a reformer, from Calvin's perspective, he was calling for a revolution, denying the infallibility of both the Catholic and the relatively new Protestant church fathers, who were saying the opposite. So, it's a matter of perspective about whether someone is a revolutionary or a reformer. Catholic priest Dwight Longnecker, even to this day, wrote in 2011 about his perspective on the changes that many have been demanding, even from the modern Catholic Church. He says, revolution is the dull perspective of the idealist. He sees that something is wrong, and like a dunderhead, instead of fixing it, he wants to break it. Like the dull boy who is frustrated by a toy he can't make work, he throws it against the wall and sees it smash. The revolutionary justifies his actions by appealing to his vague but lofty ideals. He wants to bring about a better world. He's not precisely sure what better world will be. He'll figure that out as he goes along. But one thing he is certain, 
that the first step to the better world is to destroy the old world. The future, the brave new world, can only be built out of the blood and ashes of the old. I think he's afraid of revolution. He seems to be. By contrast, the reformer, in this kind of perspective, could be seen as in love with the inherent stability of the network of relationships and institutional connections afforded by the status quo as it has developed over generations. The reformer is terrified with the possibility of unpredictable chaos inherent in revolutionary movements. Those of us who have gained a measure of prosperity and comfort under the system as it works now are suspicious and distrustful of the ultimate motives of those who advocate radical disruption of the continuity of what we have seen during our own lifetimes, what we read in the history books. In Christianity, as I have said, this is, was an unintended result of Martin Luther's idealism, which began the Protestant Reformation. And it continued in the intellectual revolution of so-called secular humanism of the Enlightenment of the 18th century, which in some people's minds was the opening which made possible the bloodthirsty French Revolution. This pattern could be said to have continued with Lenin's I'm sorry, application of Marxism, which became communism, and Hitler and Mussolini's perversion of democratic institutions to establish a rule of state we call fascism. All of these were revolutions which actually intentionally sought to overturn the old order in what in favor of what they called a brave new world. And all such ideologies which have as their philosophical roots that such revolution is both possible and good. This week's Nation magazine, which I got over online yesterday, has an article by Arthur Goldhammer with another perspective on revolution. He talks about, in his article, the visit in 1831 by a young French nobleman and lawyer, Alexis de Tocqueville, who spent several months taking notes about what he observed in his wide-ranging tour of the new United States. Those notes became the basis for his classic book, Democracy in America, which I think I had to read for three different classes in college. De Tocqueville was impressed in particular by the American preference for gradualism over the dangerous French pattern of revolution. What the world, I'm sorry, what the word republic means in the United States is a slow and tranquil action of society on itself, a gradual reform. De Tocqueville re rejected the idea that the future could be totally severed from the past. As he saw it, this was the error of those French revolutionaries who thought that they could wipe the historical slate clean. Of course, de Tocqueville had personal interest in this. His uncle was killed by the French revolutionaries, and his parents barely escaped the guillotine themselves. For de Tocqueville, true freedom lay rather in slow action, in concert with other, others who shared a collective purpose, for the collective good. But what makes an effective revolution? And can there be a truly democratic social state without a revolution? Normally, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote, a people that have lived for centuries on the regime of castes and classes can achieve a democratic social state 
only by way of a long series of more or less painful transformation. He argued that the United States had been largely exempt from such pain as of 1831 because it had sprung from the middle of English society. The Anglo-Americans, as he called the American people, had achieved equality without a great revolution because he saw the American Revolution merely the consecration, the blessing of an already existing functional independence brought about by the divergence of economic perspectives and the accidental synchronicity of British distraction from effective supervision of those 13 American colonies. This was made explicit in the peaceful grant of Commonwealth status to the more the former Canadian colony only a few decades following the de Tocqueville's writings. Of course, de Tocqueville didn't live to see America's civil war, which would have counted in almost anyone's perspective as a social revolution, although he did anticipate it. He wrote this phrase, if America ever experiences great revolutions, they will be brought on by the presence of blacks on the soil of the United States. Slavery. But for de Tocqueville, as for so many other observers of our country before and since, America was exceptional precisely because it had come to democracy without a great internal revolution, comparable to the French one of 1789. Our young French visitor later admitted he had distinguished too sharply between great revolutions and ordinary reform through political struggle internally. Revolutions can be a long time coming, as he wrote later in life, and even slow changes can over time reshape the social landscape, even as thoroughly as the more rapid upheavals for which we normally reserve that word revolution. For most of American history, the average American citizen who was considered in the political realm was that white heterosexual male. With that inherent status came the privilege associated with being average in our democratic social state. Yet despite stiff and continuing resistance, even today, previously disadvantaged groups of African Americans, women, gays and lesbians, and non-European immigrants have successfully over time, asserted their right to be defined by their similarity to us all rather than by their difference from the white heterosexual male. We have all become fellow human beings, even formerly discriminated against as, quote, minorities. They have also joined the majority in the realm of social representation and the structure of our society. This year, we have seen politicians on both the right and the left claim the label of revolutionary. And we have independent and libertarian candidates who tell us that both the Republicans and the Democrats have sold out to corporate interests. But Bernie Sanders, as a continuing favorite for what he now terms the new revolution movement, is encouraging adoption of a reform agenda as promoted by one of the parties. What do you think? What do you feel? Do you want reform? Would you prefer revolution? Would you be willing to take the risk to have the whole system up for grabs? Do you want a new constitutional convention 
which would be able to start over and try to reform the whole structure of our nation, the economics, the politics, the institutional identity. One of the things that we really have to consider is whether we are willing to take that risk or whether we are too comfortable with what is and are willing only to entertain small changes. I know I don't want to give up Social Security right now at age 66 and a half, <laughs> even if it were a great system to, to, that would replace it. I think that most of us are a little concerned about whether universal health plans are actually going to benefit everybody with the, with the intervention of the insurance system. Are we willing to give up what little we have in security in order to drastically change our, our whole country? And one could ask whether our loyalty to the current system is well-earned, whether it's well-placed, whether we're showing good judgment, even as we face the possibility of a system which we probably would prefer not to see, something that's more authoritarian, more exclusive. You know, they say that patriotism is in the eye of the beholder and that um, the phrase, my country right or wrong, is something that is at the basis of patriotism, of of actual loyalty and fidelity to the, the nation we claim as our own. How does it feel when our perspective is in the minority, when others are in charge who have an opposite opinion to on how to actually conduct the business of the country? It doesn't feel good. Those who have rights now, who have asserted those rights continually for generations, don't want to give them up. They see them as, as intrinsic to our value as citizens of a country that we respect. I wonder how the American Revolution actually transpired, whether we can understand that there were a significant number of people, perhaps even the majority of property owners who were loyalists to the British crown, whose newspapers claimed that those terrible so-called patriots who dumped tea into the harbor in Boston were really committing treason by advocating the overthrow of a system of government that was comfortable for those who had a lot of property. How would we feel if a similar kind of thing were to happen today? How did we feel in the turbulence of the 60s and the 70s and the 80s when the counter, you know, the anti-war movement of which many of us were a part were saying this is wrong. Our country is wrong. It needs to change. How many of us identified with Martin Luther King in his March for Justice in Washington said, this is the poor people's revolution, the poor people's march, demanding justice. How many of us were on the side of the people who were actually saying, you can't destroy property in order to assert your rights? 
You can't disobey authority in order to assert your rights. How many of us see the football players who kneel during the, 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 the um, playing of the Star Spangled Banner and see that as counter to our view of what patriotism is? If you listen to the My Country Right or Wrong bunch, they'll accuse anyone who questions the erosion of civil rights of being un-American. And part of this is the effort to connect Christianity, the Christian religion, with the government. To many of us, it's an integral component of patriotism. If you aren't a Christian, can you be patriotic? Can an atheist be patriotic? Not if you watch Fox News. Simply implying that a presidential candidate might be Muslim was enough to smear him, to continue to assert that he was born outside the United States, even in the face of documentary evidence, was their way of being patriotic, their way of saying that he didn't have um, credibility and he didn't have legitimacy as an elected officer of the government. But... Most religions and most nations are actually based on wonderful stories, parables, or postulates. Each of those, each of those stories and myths tell us what is good and what is evil, how we should live and what we must reject. So many of us memorize the rules while forgetting the central tenet of every religion, the golden rule that starts like, this do unto others. I would assert that the revolution that came from Martin Luther and Michael Servetus was about changing the relationship of human beings to God, which had actually begun in the Jewish tradition when Jesus said to the Pharisees, it matters not how much we follow the rules. It matters if we are in healthy, positive, constructive relationship with our God by being in healthy relationship with our community, by doing good to those who are around us, who are a part of God's community, which transcends all boundaries. The words of Jesus, the lessons of Jesus, the religion not about Jesus but of Jesus' teachings, is what we need to remember. Do unto others. Do unto others. And you will have actually served God, however you construct God. And you will have also served your fellow man. And national identities and theological identities must go beyond the words of any book the words of the Bible themselves, into the message, the truth that is beneath those words, that to be authentic human beings with integrity, we must always be willing to reform what we do. And sometimes that feels like revolution. Thank you for your attention this morning. Please stand as you are able and join me in hymn number